So I've started the last maybe three podcasts by saying the same thing that I can't believe what episode number it is, but it is truly episode 101 of the Comics First podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Comics First CEO, Justin Alba, joined by one, two, three, four awesome people today. We're going to get to that in a second. Uh, but before we go there, just a reminder that you can find more podcasts like this, videos, interviews, etc., all over at comicsfirst.com. So please make sure to check us out. Today, in honor of Jean Grey's return to Marvel, quote unquote, the real Jean Grey, um, or adult Jean Grey, non-time displaced Jean Grey, whatever you want to call her, we have decided to go back and take a look at the Dark Phoenix saga in order to celebrate. And it is a favorite of many people here, especially mine. And so I thought it was only fitting that we do it for our 101st episode. Joining me over here first is Comics First writer Anika. Anika, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So tell me about your first experience with Jean Grey and the Dark Phoenix Saga. So the first time I read about Jean Grey was actually the Dark Phoenix Saga. And this was, I wasn't really an X-Men fan before. And this was when we were all at Tidewater Comic Con. We were supposed to be on this live podcast about X-Men. And it was that at that moment when I had to read Dark Phoenix Saga and everyone around everyone around me was such big X-Men fans. I remember everyone was talking about how much X-Men had an impact on them growing up on the How Comics Saved My Life panel. So I was like, first of all, I have to read this because I don't want to sound dumb on the live podcast. And I also wanted to see why X-Men matters so much to everyone else. So when I was reading Dark Phoenix Saga, interestingly, I knew already what to expect because I already had all those spoilers that Jean's going to kill herself. But when I read it, it still it was still a really interesting read because it was just so complex. Like I feel like it's such this is what true art is because it has so much room for interpretation. It's not just like very simple. It's just it can be interpreted in so many ways. It can be seen as a story of how power causes corruption. It can also be seen as a story of feminism. And that's what I love about it, that it's it's got so much room for interpretation. Is that what resonated most with you, that it was so complex and had so much room for interpretation? Yeah, definitely. And I think that when I was reading, I also read the piece that you wrote about Dark Phoenix Saga on Comics First, which was really amazing. And it also gave me another different insight in seeing Dark Phoenix Saga more of as like a classic tale of feminism, just like Ibsen's A Doll's House. So it, it gave me like a different perspective. It was like, wow, I didn't really see it as that way, as a story of like empowerment, but it really is like that. Yeah, I definitely thought about that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today uh, with everybody. And I'm super excited about that. Next up is Amna Pervez coming in all the way from San Fran. How are you, Amna? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me back. So are you excited to talk about Dark Phoenix Saga? I am. I am. And, you know, going back to what we were discussing before we started recording, you and I just had a very casual conversation about Dark Phoenix and the relatability, I think, of this character. And I think I was particularly having a rough day and you and I were chatting and you were making me laugh as usual. I don't remember how we began speaking on the topic of Dark Phoenix, but yeah, is she's she's one of my favorite characters simply because you know kind of echoing what Anika said, 
the complexity that is there. But I think in rereading the Dark Phoenix saga, there were so many elements about not just her character, but more importantly, everybody around her that were really standing out to me. So I'm excited to discuss that a little bit more with the team today. Me too. I'm super excited to hear your perspective. So Trent Seeley, it's his first time being on this podcast. You've been on several other podcasts before. What was your first contact with Dark Phoenix Saga and the X-Men, Trent? Uh, well, technically, I would say the 90s cartoon, probably. Ah, okay, cool. Because <laughs> they have an abridged version. I think that takes place over two episodes. Uh, and then when I started reading comics, I started hunting down old back issues. And I was having a horrible time until I was able to find an omnibus that uh, wasn't even colored, uh, but it had basically everything from issue 100 onwards of Uncanny X-Men, which really gives you kind of like the full scope of everything that happened to Gene, quote, if it is Gene, uh, after uh, becoming the Phoenix. And uh, just seeing this gradual transformation with her character. And uh, I like this for a lot of reasons. It's very X-Men. You know, there's, there's fighting on the astral plane. Um, there's a lot of teamwork and camaraderie. There's a lot of catchphrases. Uh, but I think the thing I like most about the entire saga is just how much passion is there. And you don't really realize it until you read it a few times. I think the Dark Phoenix saga in particular has the highest highs and the lowest lows of Gene and Scott's relationship. So I, you asked a great question. And you asked if we were going to read starting from X-Men 100 to the beginning of Dark Phoenix Saga. I've read it in the past. I know Marius has read it. I'm not sure about Anika and Amna. But because we're going to focus specifically on Dark Phoenix Saga today, what do you think those issues or that time period can inform us and inform our audience who's listening about Dark Phoenix Saga today? I, I think the biggest thing that it informs is just the transformation of Jean's character over time. Uh, so from her introduction in, I believe the second issue technically of Uncanny X-Men, uh, Jean Grey has been a good person and she's been a good hero and she has strived to be very good presenting as well. So there's a lot of elements of her personality that she has subdued. Uh, she's not one to dress seductively and as soon as she kind of becomes one with the Phoenix, we see the way that she dresses changes, the way that she interacts with other people changes. In, in Dark Phoenix, for instance, she has this passionate kiss with uh, Angel out of nowhere when Scott's right there. And she even reflects on the fact that there are instances where she's really taking joy out of things that she knows is horrible. So even before Dark Phoenix takes place, she's kind of isolated at her most vulnerable time in her life. And you have to remember that she's in her early 20s as well. So while she has the power of a god, she has the emotional experience of a 24-year-old. And that's when Jason Wingard really starts introducing himself. There's, it's not said explicitly, but the subtext of one instance where he appears to be a man named Mikos, uh, while she's traveling on vacation, is that he, uh, well, essentially raped her. Uh, and that's something that she doesn't realize until this whole facade, the illusion, is broken. So I asked if we were going to be touching on what takes place before 127, because you do see these little peppering in of uh, classic Claremontisms, where he's he's kind of leading you in the direction of the story before it really takes place. 
Uh, and it, it really goes to show how much change genes had to unfortunately experience over time. So for those who have only just read the Dark Phoenix Saga and who are listening to this, what is one thing from those issues that you would really like them to know to kind of put them in the right perspective? I think the the thing that made her most vulnerable is there was an instance after everyone had uh, returned to Earth. Uh, you'll remember that she uh, was piloting a shuttle that landed in Jamaica Bay, and then she leapt out of the water like Aphrodite. And not long after that, they were on a mission, and only her and Beast, to her knowledge, survived. So she was under the impression that the rest of the X-Men were dead. And she went back to the X-Mansion and she told Xavier that everyone else had died and he had left Earth with Lalandra. So, you know, Beast starts working on inventions. Uh, Professor X is in space. All the other X-Men to her are assumed dead, even though they're in the Savage Land. And her, instead of uh, taking this opportunity to deal with this trauma that she's experienced, just chose a path of escapism and she she went on vacation and she met strangers and every single one of those strangers was mastermind and she had no idea so she was being manipulated specifically because she was so incredibly alone and it happened in comics over a, a year and a half uh, and that lead up I think had such an impact you know uh, her not embracing the elements of her psyche that she might have considered to be darker uh, led to, you know, being broken by Mastermind and then her becoming that dark persona and eventually Dark Phoenix. I love that. You brought up two really awesome points. And I love thinking about her being reborn out of the water like Aphrodite. I never thought of that before. And I think that's so really smart. And also thinking about how alone she was and how susceptible she was to Wingard. I have a woman who studies human rights, and um, you know, I, I think we all consider ourselves a feminist, but she is really into uh, feminism and feminist theory. And she hated Jean and Dark Phoenix Saga because she felt like, it was Karen. Do you remember Karen, Amna? Uh, it was Karen. And Karen said that she hated, uh, I'm gonna have to cut that. And she said that she hated, uh, Jean Grey because she felt like she didn't stand for anything and that's what made her so susceptible. But I also wonder if what makes her so susceptible, and this is a point that you brought up, Trent, who's bringing your A-game. Another point that you also bring up that I really like is this sort of question is is what is what is happening in Dark Phoenix Saga? Yes, Jason Wingard is bringing that out. Yes, Emma Frost is helping him. Yes, the Dark Phoenix Saga is helping. But is also what's kind of going on that Jean Grey has suppressed elements of who she is that don't fit into her sense of self, and now they're manifesting in these negative behaviors can also be a, a metaphor for that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's my impression of this. Um, I've taken a few classes on Jungian psychology, and he had this idea of the shadow self. So every element of our persona that we think is socially unacceptable and choose to repress just kind of concentrates over time. And if your conscious self shatters, all that's left of you is that unconscious self. And I think that's what happened in this instance. I think between realizing that she had been manipulated over a few years that she's had to see her friends die on more than one occasion. And in this instance, she just saw the love of her life die that was the final crack and all that was left was this unbridled power. And I think another thing that's really worth consideration is the fact that she had all these 
psychic circuit breakers going on in her brain that have been opened over time, the floodgates of her godlike power, which no human arguably would be able to control, have just opened wide. Uh, so it's just a cataclysm. It's a perfect storm. Yeah, you brought up so many good points. Marius, talk to me about your first experience reading Dark Phoenix Saga. And also welcome, we should say, uh, Marius podcast aficionado at Comicsverse and uh, X-Men writer. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so, um, yeah, my first experience with Dark Phoenix Saga is pretty interesting because um, I've always been an X-Men fan since I was a child. But um, since this... Um, this is such a, a classic, I want to say, um, in X-Men comics lit- literature. It's almost funny that I um, only got to checking it out pretty late. I think it was even in, in preparation for one of the podcasts we had, one of the first podcasts we had. So uh, I basically went into the, the reading experience of uh, the Dark Phoenix saga already having read all of the, the modern X-Men works that were inspired by, by what happened in Dark Phoenix saga or that the Dark Phoenix saga had, had so many implications for. Because um, I want to say that uh, my, my favorite X-Men comic book still to this date is probably God Loves Man Kills. I think it's the most uh, well-written one. Mm-hmm. But in terms of being the, the most iconic story, this, the single um, most important X-Men book, I would probably say it's the Dark Phoenix Saga by Longsharp. Yeah, I probably come from this with, with kind of a, um, a different perspective um, as compared to other X-Men fans because I'm, um, I'm younger than a lot of other X-Men fans. And we've talked about that um, on many podcasts. Um, but I'm sure some of this is going to come up later. Yeah, so my question is, for people who are also in your position, who grew up in the 90s and the aughts, who are you know fans of newer X-Men comics, for you, and do you also think for them, if you can speak for everyone in your position, do you think that, did reading the Dark Phoenix saga shed light for you on the goings-on in current X-Men comics? Because I know, you know the Phoenix is still around, we have Hope Summers, we have Rachel Gray, we have, um, I mean, how many other... Uh, cable you know we have a lot of people who are now from the summer's gray dynasty so to speak so do do you think that what happened in dark phoenix saga informed you a little bit more about why things were happening decades later a little bit Uh, so for me absolutely yes and i'm not sure if i could speak for everyone but i think um most people coming kind of from my position checking this book out later will um have kind of a similar experience will be able to take something away from it in terms of like getting a better understanding for current X-Men comics. Because um, if we think of um, of the current leader of the X-Men, which is Katie Pride, um, this is her first ex- uh, first appearance. This is where it all started. Um, also characters like Dazzler and Emma Frost, of course, um, their, um, their character arcs, but also... Um, their relationship to other characters, that's, it, it all started here. And some um, character-defining moments for, for so many um, of the most important characters in the franchise, it's all there. So, um, for instance, um, like the part where, uh, where Jean takes off Cyclops' glasses, um, I think this scene alone um, helps a lot understanding works like uh, New X-Men by, by Grant Morrison, but also Astonishing X-Men by, by Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were all the, the books that I, I grew up with. Um, and now I, I understand them a lot better. Also X-Men The End, which is also by, by uh, Chris Claremont. Yeah, I could, I could go on <laughs> with this uh, for the entire podcast. I think there's a lot of examples. 
I think there is too. And if you guys, listen, if people listening here, episode uh, 99 of our podcast, we're talking about the last issue of Jean Grey, about the time displaced Jean Grey. And we're literally talking about Dark Phoenix. What I love about Dark Phoenix Saga too is that, and something that you brought up, Marius, is the decades long or the half a century long, really, rivalry between Jean Grey and Emma Frost starts here. And then the middle of it, right, is is Emma sleeping with her husband, with Jean's husband, and then her ending up with him. And 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 this is, you know, a, a decades long rivalry. And I think that it starting here is is really kind of cool. For me, I just want to say, only because I think it's like super important. The first comic I ever read was a classic X-Men. It was number 37. And it had one of the issues from Dark Phoenix Saga. And it was the one where kind of Kitty Pride is running away and uh, Jean throws her hands up and stops the car with the Hellfire Club goons to get her. It was so profound. I love the Dark Phoenix Saga. It was the first X-Men storyline that got me into it when I was six years old. I was so blown away that, you know, as Aniga has told us, that this woman takes her home life at the end. And it started me reading X-Men comics for decades. Finally, I was at Columbia University and they had just ingested all of Chris Claremont's writings. He had dedicated, he had donated everything to the comics library at Columbia and Butler Library. They had yet to fully ingest it all. The comics class I was taking was over the summer. It was called Comics and Graphic Novels as Literature. I met some amazing people there. Uh, one who now works for Marvel, who did many podcasts with us, uh, Kathy. And uh, we go into the library. We go to look through the stuff. I was the last person in. I got the last seat at the table. I sit down. I look right down. And it's Chris Claremont's script for the exact same issue that was the first comic I read with like handwritten notes and written on his typewriter. And then, you know, fast forward, you know, we all know Chris Claremont well. We, you know, I've been to his house. He's done podcasts and panels with us. And, you know, that's kind of what started comics first. So I really want to say like how profound this comic book is not only for me, but for the the company. But really quick, for people who are listening, we are about to have a, a very intellectual kind of academic discussion and very personal discussion about this. But I also want to talk about, it is a little bit cheesy. Like, let us not, like, this is written for kids. The ideas behind it are not for kids, but it is written for kids. This is pre-Watchmen. This is, came out right about the time as Mouse came out, which is also kind of broke the mold. So my question is, Amna, I know you had some trouble with this, is can you, do you still get everything you need to get from this as an adult? Do you still, are you still moved as an adult, even though the story is maybe geared towards, you know, young teenagers. Absolutely. Um, I think that reading this as an adult, I'm seeing the deeper layers of the story and of the dynamics between the characters. I think what's nice about rereading it, you know, just I was reviewing some of these things last night, trying to take notes. There's a lot going on here. I mean, just within the, the first few panels, the conversations between not just Jean or, or Phoenix and um, and Scott, but also what's going on between Professor Xavier and and Scott trying to find his place as a leader and being questioned. There, there's just a lot of adult themes here that I think young adults even today can still relate to. I'm going to open that question to everybody else. If you had advice to someone who was reading Dark Phoenix Saga for the first time, who's like, you know what, I, I don't want to read something for kids. What's some advice you could give them to tell them to hopefully get through it you know or maybe a light at the end of the tunnel because i I mean now i'm making it sound worse than it is it really is great but it's not uh the dark angel saga it's not something rick remender wrote it's not um the black hole it's not um my friend Dahmer. it's 
uh, you know, Dark Phoenix Saga, and it was written in 19, it, you know, it came out in 1979. Yeah, so I think um, this is kind of an issue that, um, that I was running into, is that um, the books you just mentioned, uh, Justin, for instance, the Dark Angel Saga from the Uncanny X-Force run by Rick Remender, something I read actually be- before the Dark Phoenix Saga. So um, these stories are pretty different in tone, and not only in tone, but... Um, I, I would say, obviously, there's parallels not only in the name. And I think that this is a good comparison because uh, it shows that in terms of like artistic choices, but also in terms of like uh, choices in, in writing, a lot has changed since. So for someone who's grown up with material like uh, New X-Men, Astonishing X-Men, um, Uncanny X-Force, going back to the 70s to, to read this classic, it seems kind of, it, it seems pretty childish, which is not inherently a bad thing. I mean, I, I think we have to keep in mind, we're still talking about one of the best comic books ever written, um, undoubtedly. But I think what I would say to, to my past self is um, that they should just um, kind of get into it, uh, kind of just try, <laughs> kind of just, just try getting into it more. Um, and go along with uh, just a few issues. And then um, I, I think that um, the reading experience just changes along the way as we kind of start to accept things like uh, the different the different coloring even or the, and the, the pretty clumsy narration. Um, I think that's something that you can get used to or that you can uh, kind of look past even though you're kind of used to used to reading comic books that are produced in a, in a very, very dr- different manner today. Anika, what about for you? Because you're a huge Ms. Marvel fan. And Ms. Marvel is so aware of itself. I, I mean, she writes fan fiction. She knows all the superheroes. Uh, this is way before that time. What were your kind of first impressions about the tone of Dark Phoenix Saga? I mean, now that you mentioned that Dark Phoenix Saga is more for directed towards kids, it's kind of surprising to me because I read Dark Phoenix Saga when I was 21 and 21 was last year for me. So I read it as a young adult and to me it seemed to be so complex and also probably because I read it along some of the academic papers that you shared and also the piece that you wrote. So maybe that's why, to me, it just felt like this is beyond the comprehension of a child. But at the same time, I'm also really drawn towards comics and television shows that are more directed towards kids. Like, for example, I'm a huge Steven Universe fan. And for a lot of people, they think that it's ridiculous that I'm so into this kids show. But I think that it has so many messages that even adults can enjoy. And it's because of the animation and the so many things that comics and cartoons can achieve that it just makes it much more meaningful to read. It just makes it a much more like, I don't know, like a satisfying experience to watch and to read and to see than as opposed to anything that's more like clearly directed towards adults. Because I feel like these children's, anything that's directed more towards children, they have more like a indirect message. It's not like really, really like simple. It's more like wrapped in complexity, which makes it enjoyable for both like kids because they don't really understand all that complexity. And also for adults, because they're like understanding what's going on, that this is much more deeper than just like a children's cartoon or comics. And I have to say it packages the story super well for children because as a kid reading this, this was the first time I ever experienced a suicide that was not 
what society would deem as super selfish and really terrible. And I had never been confronted with that idea before. So it was super eye-opening for me as a six-year-old, as a seven-year-old reading this. And it's interesting you said that. This was the first reading I had, not the one that we did today, but the, I read it uh, earlier this week. And it was the first time I read it and I was in the moment with it. And I wasn't so, uh, I wasn't judging it as a comic that came out before the medium exists as we know it now. What about you, Trent? You're, you're a big X-Men fan. So were you able to kind of dive into the tone of it as is? I think there's a, a historical context to it. Um, and a lot of comics of this time had a tendency of over explaining themselves and they would kind of reintroduce every character and every scenario and everything that had happened, every issue with the understanding that whoever was reading may not have read the previous issue. And that's something that modern comics really don't do too much. Outside of that, it's a very Claremont book, uh, and that's a double-edged sword. Uh, Claremont loves prose. He loves narration, um, and <laughs> there's quite a bit of it throughout this saga. The nice thing, as I kind of alluded to earlier, was that Claremont has a tendency of like sprinkling in future events everywhere. Um, and actually one of the nice little, I wouldn't call it an Easter egg because that's not what he would have intended, but uh, Senator Robert... Kelly, who is an antagonist that's well known from later on in this series, the reason why he hates mutants is because his wife died and mutants did nothing to save her. And her first introduction was during the Dark Phoenix saga. She's the maid in the Hellfire Club. So the fact that he goes back and he he picks these characters that have some sort of establishment and pulls them forward. Uh, there was even two Hellfire guards, Harvey and Jan, who are well known because they're like the friendly co-workers that aren't killers. Uh, and they show up in a number of his comics as well. So if you read a lot of his stuff and you kind of wrap your head around how dialogue heavy it is, you, you get your own kind of appreciation for the, the content itself. But if you're used to newer comics where there's more of a refined idea of what X-Men means, it can be a little bit dense to get into. Who is Jean Grey? Is that an open question? <laughs> uh, well, I think if we're believing the retcon <laughs> that would later come with X-Factor's introduction, Jean Grey is still at the bottom of Jamaica Bay at the time of these events. <laughs> okay, that's true. Who is Jean Grey in the Dark Phoenix Saga? I think the Jean Grey of the Dark Phoenix Saga is someone who has tried repeatedly to walk away from being an X-Man who has seen a lot of the people that are close to her, who she loves die and hasn't really asked for anything that's happened to her. But she had that one moment where she knew she was about to die and she called out for help. And what answered her was the Phoenix. I don't think anyone her, her age or uh, who has had to deal with the sort of social stigma that, a mutant of her age would have had to deal with would, would have been prepared for. Uh, so I see her as this empathetic part of the team who's trying to grasp with the fact that she has this amazing godlike power and she's finding it to be seductive and it scares her that it's seductive to her and it scares other people like Storm who notice a personality change. I also think this is a fascinating question because it pu it puts into question who is not only who is Jean Grey, but also who is Jean Grey as opposed to the Phoenix. And because this has been um, retconned a lot, I think, um, 
in books like uh, Phoenix Ensong or uh, Phoenix Rising, of course, um, it's always been kind of changed as to whether we should uh, be seeing Gene and the Phoenix as kind of the same entity or as uh, different beings altogether. But just taking uh, kind of a look at the, the source material here, I think that the fact that Jean is her own entity and is distinct, a distinct human being with her own qualities, um, distinct from the Phoenix is one of the, the big points being made in the, in the book. And one of the last sentences um, uh, it says that she died a human instead of living as a god, which is what she chose. So, so one of the big points, and this is also something that Scott points out in their relationship as they um, as they have their uh, little dialogues. I think that one of the m- most important points is that uh, with all the loss of control, there's um, there's a very determined woman in there that has her own yeah her own uh, determination or choice. I think if I had to say who Jean Grey is in one word I would say paradoxical because I think she's yeah Jean Grey is obviously separate from Phoenix like they're both separate entities but then again Phoenix we can't deny that Phoenix was a part of her and that's and she realized that and that's one of the reasons why she I mean she has this like sort of like an identity crisis where she feels so empowered to be the phoenix but at the same time she was traumatized by what she had done she had destroyed an entire universe and that's not what jean would do so it's this sort of like how i felt when i was really depressed like i felt like depression and me were separate but it almost became like so intertwined that we just became like the same like it just it was just like i like how jean couldn't like be like Jean Grey couldn't be Phoenix. Like I mean, Jean Grey was became she became Phoenix. It was almost like even though they're two separate I- entities. So, and I think that's what she struggled the most with throughout the comic, and that's what you know, like that's when she just decided that she didn't want to live like that anymore. And she, it was almost sort of like a depression where she said that you know she had to like just end her life because there was no way like she tried to be marvel girl for a while but she knew that okay this is not gonna work i'm i am a part of phoenix now and i just have i either live with this or i just kill myself this actually reminds me a lot i'm gonna jump into a different universe for a second um i don't know if there are any star trek fans here but um jedzia dax who um is a trill and trills are um hosts to these symbionts these creatures and once you are joined with a symbiont you become one and you rely on one another to survive if you are separated once you've been joined neither creature can live and what is so reminiscent what made me think of that specifically is if you go to the ending of um, the series that we just read just before Jean kills herself, she, in her own words, and I know this has been a debate, you know, are they the same person? Are they two separate entities? And I think the answer is actually here in the text. Um, She specifically says two beings, Jean Grey and Phoenix, separate, unique, bound together, a symbiote, Peter, neither can exist without the other. Like it literally says that. And I I think um, to kind of piggyback off of what Anika and, and you know others have mentioned just about what it is is a, is a conflict in identity and trying to understand 
who it is that you are. And so this idea of being tantalized by quote unquote dark things, bad things, suppressing it, those are still very real concepts that people of all ages still struggle with. I mean, I'm a full grown adult and there are times where I sometimes question or have to rethink who I am and what I stand for. And when you have these two separate identities that you're trying to filter through, it begins to get very cloudy. And, you know, kind of what Anika is saying is with with Phoenix, there's this struggle trying to separate who I am, or not I, um, who who Jean or who Phoenix is from this dark Phoenix. It gets very confusing. And sometimes you need a calming voice that can help you get centered. And no one around her is really providing that until Mastermind came in. How is it that he was able to control the Phoenix? How is it that he was able to come in and get the Phoenix to do exactly what it is that he wanted to do? And the Phoenix did so with purpose and with focus. And outside of that, it was complete chaos. Because Mastermind, though working for the bad guys, allowed her to just accept who she is and be herself. And I think going back to what I think Trent said earlier about suppressing aspects of your identity and who you are when you suppress it that's when things become very become very complicated because it still remains an alien idea that you're dealing with an alien part of yourself Mm -hmm. the only way to really truly grasp really get control over these things is really to embrace the good and the bad and understand where they sit put them in the boxes this is where this sits this is where this sits i have tapped into both I have control over both and I can use either at my own will. And what I'm seeing here is a young woman who is really struggling and has no guidance and no support. But, you know, it's kind of like a, this is a trope in, you know, a lot of American literature, especially where um, the hero must go through the struggle and must endure it alone. It's a very American mentality. That is really what I see embodied in the Dark Phoenix saga. And to piggyback a little bit off of what you said, I often think, and also what Trent said, here's a 24-year-old woman, not even 25. At six years old, she her power manifests when her friend dies and, and, and she telepathically connects with her. A part of her dies, a part of Jean dies. She is in a mental hospital for much of her childhood. Uh, she has very loving parents. She has a loving sister. Xavier puts some psychic blocks in her. She gets out of the mental hospital. She joins the X-Men. She's now the weakest member. And she suddenly has a near-death experience, comes into all of this power. And she's now the powerhouse of the team. And that's kind of where the story's starting. And when you think about how alone she must feel and, and how humble she is to try to be a person who's experiencing life as a goddess. I mean... Can you imagine sitting here and being able to imagine what everyone or instantly know what what is going on in everyone's mind here or or to be able to turn that dresser into like a stone or something? It's it's when you think about what that does to a person and where she is at the beginning of the story, I think that, that that's quite profound. A lot to take in at such a young age. Yeah, I think I used to be really like fascinated about this power of like reading people's minds and like, you know, moving objects with your like mind. But after like reading about Jean Grey, I just realized how, I mean, it's not really cool. I mean, it's, it can be, I mean, sometimes you just don't want, don't want to know what people are thinking. And a lot of times probably Jean 
I don't know if she like you guys would know better since you're X-Men experts, but I don't know if she does it purposely or if she, it's something that she can't control. But if it's the latter, then I wouldn't say it's something it would definitely be something terrible to have because it's just you're dealing with the burden of all these other people. Like, for example, when I was reading the issue where I think that was like the Bizarre Adventure mm -hmm. comic where um, Jean for the first time experiences her power when her best friend Annie dies. So in that instance, it was almost like being empathetic, but also like in a different level because you can feel exactly what the person is feeling, which is very traumatic. So I would say that it is definitely like a, at, at a very young age also, it's a very challenging thing to have. Yeah, I, I think in some respects, Jean Grey is victim of her power. Um, there was a period of time where Professor X had to shut off her uh, telepathic abilities. She still had her telekinetic abilities because she couldn't handle everyone's thoughts just being everywhere. And I think one of the really defining moments within the Dark Phoenix saga is when you know, she has gone Dark Phoenix and she's come back from space and the place that she chooses to visit is her family home. Uh, and she's able to dig so deep to see so clearly through her family members that she senses this terror that they have of her, of her abilities. This, this concern that her sister has that her children will someday be mutants. And to just process how devastating it would be to have family who are so terrified of you. None of us could really do that because we don't know what other people are thinking, but she can see through everyone around her and she's not in a mental state where she's able to process it in a way that's healthy. I also think it's interesting to see kind of the, the difference between um, how her powers and kind of her um, lack of control of her telepathic abilities was portrayed here versus how it is portrayed in, in comics nowadays. Because in comics nowadays, we're, we're mostly talking about the teenage version of Jean Grey, the, the time-displaced version. Uh, and I know this is not the, uh, the subject of this podcast. We already uh, have one on that. But uh, I just think it's interesting to see how uh, in this iteration of the character, she's very willing, once she has kind of uh, regained some of the control over her telepathic abilities, to just uh, go around poking in people's heads as opposed to to this version of the character who is, um, or as the others have mentioned, very much um, uh, suffering from the fact that uh, there are a lot of thoughts that she can't really like purposefully um, get out of her own head um, in terms of what other people are thinking about her. And I think it's, uh, it's interesting to see both sides of the character and uh, the potential that's there in terms of storytelling for the character. Can we talk a little bit about the men in the series and their influence over Jean? Because I had a similar experience myself and that when you ascend to a certain place or ascend to get a certain title, you don't change, but suddenly the way people around you treat you differently. And although Jean has the power of the Phoenix, Jean is still Jean in a lot of ways, in every way that counts, I feel. And that can definitely be argued throughout the series. But I can't help but to think about all these men who try to exert their influence on her and how they just can't deal with a woman who has this much power. I mean, you've got Wingard in there losing his shit. We've got to control her. Cyclops doesn't know which end is up. I mean, he I mean, feels 
emasculated throughout this entire thing, frankly, if I can do say so myself. And uh, which is later what, 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 which is what throws him in the arms of Emma Frost. Then next thing you know, you've got this girlfriend, you know, your fiance, you're, you're probably being like, hey, Gene, tonight should be the night. Let's try something kind of sexually a little bit different. She's like, no, Scott, I'm not that kind of girl. Yet with, here he's watching her with Wingard and she's doing everything. He's doing everything. She's doing everything that he wants because he's controlling her. You also have Xavier who put those blocks in her head, which, yes, uh, the, the psychic barriers were for a good cause because she couldn't handle her telepathy. But there are all these men exerting what they want on Jean Grey, and I can't help but to think that that's slightly problematic within the diegesis of the story. Yeah, there's patriarchy like all over the place here. <laughs> and I know there's some listeners who are probably cringing at that word. I mean, but this is a prime example, a classic example of what patriarchy looks like, um, especially... You, know, you look at every aspect of her life, the people closest to her, her teacher, her mentor, her guardian, her father, Charles Xavier. You look at the relationship with Cyclops, you know, but even, even her colleagues like Storm, for example, and, and I know we're stepping away a little bit from the, the theme on examining the men, the, the constant reaction to her is fear. Fear. Everybody fears her. And the only person who really doesn't just because their own arrogance is, is probably overshadowed by any common sense or fear that person should have had was mastermind. And that's because he didn't really understand what it was that he was dealing with. Right. Isn't that somewhat human though? Everyone does absolutely approach her with fear, but we fear what we don't understand. And this is someone who can go from wearing a dress to her costume by manic- uh, uh, manipulating her, the molecules of her clothing within two seconds, you know she's able to crunch a car into a ball and then have it function as a normal car five minutes later. Her command over the physical world with her telepathic abilities is not just far and away bigger than any other telepath or telekinetic on Earth. It is very much godlike. And, and I, I would absolutely say that there, there is patriarch, uh, patriarchal themes around uh, Jason Wingard and Professor X. I think the challenge of examining Scott within the confines of the Phoenix saga, as opposed to everything that's happened since Phoenix has been introduced, is uh, essentially since she came out of the waters of Jamaica Bay, he didn't feel like he loved her the same way. Something was off. He knew something was off. And since that time, he's seen her die. He's uh, dated Colleen Wing for a period of time. He's had this roller coaster romance with her, and he sees her kind of getting out of control in these instances where they're fighting with people and lives are on the line. So I. I hesitate to put him in the same box as Mastermind or Professor X because really when you look at Scott, he's, he never knows which way is up. That's just part of his character. But with respect to this, I think he just doesn't understand what's going on with the, the only person he's ever really loved in his entire life. Right. Uh, no, those are all valid points and I do not disagree with anything. What I, I challenge folks um, who perhaps might be so easy to dismiss Scott. And this is not me being overly critical. I mean, I, I still think that he's a fantastic character. He's a good partner for Gene. But just as fearing something that you don't quite understand is quote unquote human, and I use air quotes because 
I don't believe everybody has a natural reaction to that. Like, for example, when I first saw that Jean can change her clothing by manipulating molecules, I'm sorry, molecules. What am I saying? Monocle, monic molecules. My first reaction was, that is so cool. If my best friend could do something like that, oh my God, the fun that we can have. And I'm saying this as an adult, (laughs) as an adult. Um, I think that you are right. Many folks have a natural reaction, well, natural, um, to fear the things that they do not know. But quite frankly, I, I really think that's it comes down to what you learn socially. If your reaction is to naturally fear something that you don't understand, um, you've been taught to do that because there are some folks who naturally are not like that. So I think that's debatable, but that's that's another podcast. Going back to to Scott, I think that as the person probably closest to her, most intimately involved with her, it would have been nice to see him step up as a partner. And instead of closing himself off, even if sensing something is wrong, I would take it as my personal duty to figure out something is different. I should figure out what it is rather than shunning this person. And even though I might feel fear, it wouldn't necessarily prevent me from behaving the way that he does. Like I would put my fear aside and I would expect, I guess, as somebody of of this caliber, a hero of this caliber, to be a little bit more emotionally selfless than I think he was represented in this particular saga. That's all. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that a include the events that took place with the Shi'ar Empire, though, where he and the other X-Men are fighting for her life? Because the, the dynamic between her and the X-Men, it shifts when suddenly uh, Professor X is able to re-engage those psychic circuit breakers with Jean. She is essentially, in some respects, Marvel Girl again, at least from a power level perspective. And it's her life on the line. And it's her friends and companions that are saying, yeah, we're probably going to die if we fight these people, but we're going to do it because it's Jean. Mm-hmm. You know, so and that's that's my only hesitation there. Like, I, I, I'll absolutely agree. Like, uh, Scott, I think because he just never knows what's going on, it, he isn't really presented the best way throughout the saga. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think he's trying to control Gene like the other men within this book are. I think he's just trying to understand. And I, I don't think it's something that he can understand. I, I really think it depends. Your perspective depends on who you identify with in the comic. I bet you, Amna, like me, you identify with Jean. So I get very pissed off when they're like, oh, what's wrong with her? Why is she acting so different? It's like, she's in a bad mood, asshole. Like, let her do whatever the <laughs> fuck she wants. Like, why don't you just take a chill pill and just not stop judging her, Storm? But, I, you know, I think if you don't identify with Jean, you're like, oh, my God, my best friend, who's normally so nice, is controlling people's minds and eating planets. And, you know, it's making me a little nervous for them. Um, but I think if you identify with Jean, you're like, uh, hold on. I've been nice all the time. Like I'm a human being with a range of emotions. And right now I'm a little pissed off. So I'm going to, you know, kill the people in this car. Right. Plus the emotions I, I, of this new thing that is now inhabiting me. Right. But, and I think you, you actually highlight something important though, Justin, because the, the dynamic of the book does change based on the fact that she consumes a son and essentially murders billions of innocent lives. Um, and actually, I've I've heard that that was uh, something that the artist chose and that Claremont didn't choose and that they had to change the events narratively afterwards because when you have such a large loss of life, there has to be some sort of uh, universal 
punishment, uh, some sort of vindication there. And that amounted to the death of Jean Grey. But to that point, like she is godlike in a number of respects throughout the early part of this saga. She chooses to eat a son because she's hungry for a snack after coming out of a time gate and it kills billions of people. Uh, and I don't think you can look at someone the same way after they do that sort of thing. It's too impactful. And she, but by her own admission, she enjoyed it. She liked it. And I think she fears herself for that exact reason. Oh, God. I so identify with that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree with uh, with much of what has been said up until this point. Um I think that I've always seen Scott as a pretty good partner up until uh, this point, at least uh, for Jean, because to some extent, I think that they are both characters that are, that have problems with with control, longing for control over over their powers, over their lives to an extent. And I think uh, this is why um, Scott will uh, inevitably feel emasculated or kind of out of set out of control um, by realizing that Jean. Um, is in a way above his head. So I, I definitely think that um, he's in no way uh, a flawless character. It should be uh, pointed out how, how patriarchy plays a role in here for sure. But um, overall, I, I think that um, these are characters that kind of manage to bring out the best in one another. And and the the scene I was mentioning earlier with, with her taking off the glasses for him, I think that uh, this is kind of paralleled by the fact that um, when she goes back into being Dark Phoenix in the very end of the book, he manages to bring out her human side more so she can commit suicide to 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 potentially save billions of lives. Um, and she, he's not even hesitant to do so after learning that, um, well, she's essentially killed uh, billions of, of sentient beings, um, but he still manages to bring out the human side in her. And I think that this, this is a quality in their uh, relationship that um, should not be underestimated. But I also think that uh, in a lot of ways, um, the story of Jean in, in Dark Phoenix are under kind of a, a critical feminist framework can be, uh, can be read in multiple ways. Um, I think that some of the secondary literature that we were getting into uh, was mentioning how this is a, a common trope that women uh, that are presented with having a lot of power are usually presented as uh, as being too moody or as not being in control enough to to being able to handle it. And I think that, well, on the one hand, it's not uh, to be taken for for granted in the 70s that um, a woman would be presented with with the power level of gene um, at all. I think there's some some truth to that. And it's it's complicated with other women in in X Men history at that point because um, for Storm it was it's it's a whole another story that um, we got in we already got into that in in a whole another podcast and it's really complicated. Yeah, I think Marius brought a really good point. I think that I understand both perspectives. I think Scott really tried his best to be a supportive partner. I really love those moments when they were able to connect through their. Um, what was that called? Psychic rapper? Psychic report. Yeah, yeah. Psych psychic report. I really love those moments and I thought they were really romantic. But also to piggyback what Amna said earlier, that instance where Jean dressed herself, like changed her clothes with by mani manipulating molecules. Um, we saw that Scott was, I mean, I was also fascinated by that, but Scott was scared. 
And that sort of reminded me of my dad. And I love my dad, but he always says there are certain things I don't agree with him. Like, for example, he says that when a woman gets in power, like things always go wrong. And it's almost as if like he's scared of a powerful woman. And that is, I think, a, I don't know if it's a South Asian thing. I think Amna would know yes, also. It is. Yes, it <laughs> 100%. I yeah, don't care who that pisses off. Yes, it is definitely. 100% South Asian. And I also think this is a reason why we still, possibly one of the reasons why we still don't have a female president today is because many people think that a woman with power is intimidating and it's it can like lead to destruction. And to another, I want to go to a different point to um, how the influence of Mastermind on Jean Grey. So I think from my perspective, I thought that Jean was pretty much in control of the power of Phoenix until Mastermind came in and kind of manipulated her and brought out Dark Phoenix. I don't know if like everyone agrees with me. I would like to like probably open that question to everyone else. Yeah, I mean, th that was what he was trying to do. I mean, she was vulnerable, right? And and please jump in here, folks. My understanding was that she, he was waiting for an emotional, vulnerable point in which to strike and release the dark phoenix. And, you know, here's this woman kind of going back again, who is basically misunderstood and is being feared, is feeling alone, isolated, even from her lover. And here comes, I would think by modern day terms, is, you know, it's called a snake in the grass. Somebody <laughs> comes in and swoops in and basically just completely takes the rug out, not just from underneath her, but everybody else around her too, which sets in motion these, these events that lead us to what we know as the Dark, Dark Phoenix saga. Um, it, was a, it was a very calculated move. Um, but no, I, I completely agree. I think she had it somewhat under control. It was balanced, I guess. But his ability to do what he did, mastermind, I mean, um, really showed that the balance was extremely delicate. And perhaps with some more support on the other end of the spectrum, maybe she wouldn't have tipped as easily. Yeah. Uh, the narrative reasoning in the text is that she had blocks in her brain uh, that were being released by mastermind. And that's what the Phoenix wanted. And that's what Jean wanted. But I, I do think that that's a much more interesting question. If Jean had maybe made peace with the parts of herself that she thought were unsightly, if she had a more healthy understanding of herself and, and didn't try to reserve or conserve herself, would she have had a more complete control of the Phoenix? And I think that's absolutely possible. I think she may have been able to, but I think the fact that that event where so many lives were taken, that's when that narrative shift takes place and there has to be some sort of message with that event. And I think the message that they went with, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So I, I, I absolutely think that's a really interesting question. And um, yeah, I think, I think if her perspective was different, I think if she wasn't as vulnerable, she would have maintained this absolute control. But then even looking at the team dynamics, is it really interesting to read a serialized book where every enemy is uh, easily handled by this godlike force? Is this something that could continue in perpetuity when she is, you know, 20, 40, 60, 100 times more powerful than any other X-Men? I mean, possibly. 
I mean, that that's a really difficult question to speculate on um, because, I mean, like you said, it can really just go in any which direction. Um, the thing that sticks out in my mind is there's a part of her that is human. Um, and the phoenix binding with with that human is really what's causing this instability because humans are, though very strong creatures and, and capable of a lot, especially, you know, mentally, emotionally, um, there's this equal amount of vulnerability and fragility. And the fact that one, I, the fact that they chose a woman, I think, to even take on something like that in the series is pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, but would it have probably gotten out of control? Yeah, I, I think it absolutely would have, could have. But just as much as you can practice destroying something, tapping into the the dark aspects of a power or a person's ability. And I'm speaking very generally here and I'm speaking as a human because I do not know what it is to be a godlike creature. (laughs) (laughs) You don't? (laughs) Uh, As much as I like to pretend sometimes, definitely just make believe. You know, like any skill and, and, you know, you you go back to the training that the X-Men go through. You know, Professor Xavier focuses on really helping people control their powers. And though the Phoenix power is something that is clearly beyond anyone's understanding. I I did not see evidence of effort being put into understanding what this thing was. And I, I saw more effort being put into suppressing it and hiding it and not dealing with it directly. Right. So I think that question that you're asking is it's, it's hard to answer for me because nobody tried. Right. Well, and what's interesting is that every instance where the Phoenix has returned since the death of Jean Grey in the Dark Phoenix saga, the response has been of fear. Yeah. You know, Avengers versus X-Men, the whole crux of that is the Phoenix is returning to Earth. Mm-hmm. One side wants to embrace it because their population is dwindling and the other side is fearful because every time the Phoenix has come, people have died. And Phoenix and Song, too. They were having a heart attack when uh, Jean came back. And the, and the thing is, with these types of things, we, we keep talking about the emotional complexity, but yet we're speaking about it in such binary terms. You know, if, if you either embrace it or you fear it, those are not the only options. Right. I would love to see something in between get explored. What I think is interesting, because I, I know that we've talked a lot about the human element of this, the fact that Jean Grey is this young woman who's dealing with this godlike power. Uh, what about like the modus operandi of the phoenix as a being, because the reason why it wanted to bond with Jean outside of noticing that there was this mutant on earth that had connected with a young girl before her death, um, I think it wanted to experience the human condition. It wanted to know what it was to enjoy life. And Jean reflects on that in the Dark Phoenix saga. She makes a point of talking about how the more she experiences, the more she wants to experience. And it doesn't matter if that's a dark thing. It doesn't matter if that's a bad thing or a good thing. She has this zest for life that is insatiable. Did anyone have that experience when they turned 18 or something, or, or maybe in their late 20s or 30s for some of us? Is that, okay, cool, like I, uh, I'm i going to go from smoking pot and I'm going to try Coke a couple times. Or, you know what, I'm going to sleep with this guy on the first date just because. Or, you know what, I'm going to stick up to my parents for this time and maybe be in a bitchy mood or something. It was reminiscent for me to that a little bit. But maybe that's just me? I see what you mean. I don't disagree. Uh, like, I'm thinking about my own personal experiences, and I think by today's standards, I would be considered what is uh, known as a prude. <laughs> same, same. 
<laughs> but um, yeah, I'm working on it. it. In some ways, yeah, you know, I it's part of. Oh my god, this is gonna sound so cliche. A coming of age story in some ways. You know, you, you begin exploring different aspects of yourself, and everybody has aspects that are quote unquote good, aspects that are quote unquote bad. Depending on what time frame you're living in, those things can be on one side or the other. Um, but I think really the biggest lesson, at least for me in reading this, is you have to just maybe not like every aspect of who you are, but you have to just acknowledge it and you have to embrace it in some way, if, if for anything, just for your sanity, so that nobody else can come in and use those things against you. What if Jean had an experience more similar to what happened in Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force in that what if she was like, you know what, I have this, this, these dark impulses, going to try to sublimate them somehow. Would the Dark Phoenix Saga have turned out differently? Is the Dark Phoenix Saga a story about, once we look deeper into it, of course, is this a story about a woman who has tried to suppress her aspects of herself for fear of how it will hurt other people around her? And because she tried so hard to suppress them, they manifested in Dark Phoenix and taking over her. It's kind of like what you said, Trent, before about the Jungian psychology. I think I kind of experienced something like that when I was um, entering my 20s when I suddenly had this realization that I'm an adult. And I think even though legally you're an adult when you're 18, technically, I feel like you're actually an adult when when you turn 20 and it was a whole different experience for me because I was living with my family in a whole different country and I then I moved here and suddenly I was like this adult with all this power and I almost felt like the phoenix because I didn't know what to do with all this power and it was almost like this identity crisis because I was this new person versus the person that I was as a teenager and I had to just come to terms with who I am. And so in that sense, I guess I can relate to Phoenix. And I guess anyone like reaching like a milestone age, like their 20s or 30s, they can also relate to that aspect as well. Uh, what does it say about me, you and Amna that we like are like in favor of Dark Phoenix and that Marius and Trent are the only ethical people here? <laughs> I don't know if they're necessarily more ethical. No, I know. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. No, but I, I yeah, I, I need to read this and not be on the side of Dark Phoenix. That is what ha- needs to happen. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm on the side of Dark Phoenix. I mean, because I mean, I don't know. I, and the reason why I say that is because regardless of where my dark urges are and how upset I might get, I have no desire to commit genocide. And I don't think that even if I did it accidentally, I would not feel good about that. So there's there is this um, this conflict that I have with her having to do that. And in my mind, I'm like, well, maybe it wasn't Jean at all. Maybe it was completely the Dark Phoenix. But I'm also trying to stop myself from thinking that the Dark Phoenix is is necessarily this evil thing, even though it's being described in, in terms like that. And, and mm-hmm. I feel like I'm still in the process of of processing. Um, yeah, you're still processing it. Yeah, it, like exactly what that means. Can I uh, ask you something about that? Yeah. What if you think of it like when Jean Grey destroyed that planet, she was hungry, right? And it's like 
Think about if like, you and I are sitting at like a restaurant or something, right? And like a fly lands on our brioche bun, like you would just swat it away. Like you wouldn't think anything of it, you know? If it was a family of flies, you know, like you would just stomp on that shit. And that's like kind of what she did because she's so powerful. Those people were just like nothing to her. I have gone over this in my mind in this exact scenario. I'm like, how is this different than like walking into a chicken farm and grabbing like a dozen chickens and being like, all right, guys, I'm going to host a dinner party. Well, this is more like grabbing a billion chickens, I guess. But yeah, but right, it's it, a really big is, dinner is party. it like maybe her perspective is that they're nothing compared to her? And maybe they are. I mean, we only really get to see a panel of these people and they're they look like giant broccolis. But it, it seems like they have a semblance of civilization, right? Oh, of course. Yes. I'm just saying that while she was Dark Phoenix, perhaps that was her perspective. I mean, her per- she didn't even notice them. Right. And I'm just kind of trying to make sense of that. Yeah, I, I don't think of, I, I'm in no way uh, condoning genocide, as I've said before. <laughs> yeah, podcast, yeah so. I, I'm with you. Trenton. Like, I, I hear you. Yeah, I don't. They're, they're, they were beings. They were alive. There was there was sentience. Yeah, it's not OK. Like I am. I, that is unequivocally troubling and an unforgivable thing and i really think that the ending of this series was appropriate given that there was there was this fact like let there be no confusion about regardless of where i stand or what i might stick up for uh with gene and with with the dark phoenix and this struggle that is not okay (laughs) at all ever I'd feel bad. I, I just want to go on the record and say I, I would feel if I even if I didn't meet she didn't meet them. I would if I killed an entire race of broccoli people after I came to it, I'd be like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. Uh, I I I mean I I would be horrified. I I I don't know why do I have to say this? Of course I'd be horrified. I don't <laughs> condone genocide. You feel alone. I do. I I don't condone genocide, and that's all I want to say. Let me <laughs> let me let me put us on to something else before I get on broccoli people and how how much I like broccoli and if they had cheese on the top how much I would have maybe eaten them I'm just saying um but anyway okay real question when you hear people say that dark phoenix saga and gene becoming phoenix is a response to second wave feminism how do you react to that and I'd like to start with Marius if that's possible okay so I think that uh for me personally this is kind of relatable right now because um well, my 20th birthday is going to be in three days. Oh, happy <laughs> birthday. Happy birthday. Um, uh, over the course of the last few years, um, like a lot of things have happened that um, I was reminded um, during this conversation in terms of like having a, a conflict with within yourself or uh, trying to find your own identity in terms of like, wow, I'm, I'm kind of an adult now. I mean, I've been um, in the context of my... Uh, teacher trainee program um i've been teaching my my very first class uh for the first time this year i've uh, moved out of my parents house um i've started working at university as well on uh, on top of my my studies so um yeah i, I think it's, it it can be a last year was it 2017 i think it can be a lot to take in um and a lot of of stuff that kind of like like forms an identity, but also gives you like the power and re- the responsibility that so many um, superhero comic books uh, are about, basically. So yeah, I could. Uh, what what you were saying was really resonating with me. Um, I hadn't really previously considered um, the analogy there with with the Dark and Phoenix saga, which is probably because I always perceived um, Gene to to already be a quote unquote adult character. So this kind of this is kind of a, a perspective that um yeah but uh, adds a new layer of meaning to the text for me. 
I want to say. So it was interesting. Um, but Justin, you had another question about uh, second wave feminism. Yeah, there are people like myself who have talked about Dark Phoenix Saga as a response to second wave feminism. Because here you have Jean, she has grown into so much power. And, you know, we had a whole conversation about the patriarchy. Can we talk about Jean and her ascension to the Phoenix in terms of 1979? You know, you have the bionic woman on TV. You've got Wonder Woman on TV. Women are going to work. I mean, I remember, you know, I grew up in the 80s. I don't know how it was for you, Amna, but my mother was the only one who worked. I was the only one who didn't get picked up at school. I was one of, like, three people on the bus and the whole and our whole, like, you know, whatever, kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth grade. And, you know, things are different now. I don't know anyone who's, whose mother stays home. I know a lot of moms who wish they could stay home. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, it, that two-income thing is, is important. So it, sometimes it becomes challenging for me to remind myself and to remind others what life was like even in the 90s for women. And then this is the 70s. So looking at Dark Phoenix Saga through that lens, what does that bring up for you? And how do you respond to that? I think it's telling that the weakest mutant on the X-Men, a Marvel girl who at one point only could really telekinetically carry small wooden blocks, ascends to not only one of the most iconic visages of any superhero, male or female, and this power that is uh, truly awesome in the traditional sense of the word, not the common colloquial, oh, that's cool sense, like full of awe, like... Jean absolutely um, is empowered by the Phoenix Saga, but I think the the danger of putting her within the lens of that specifically is that she does a number of troubling things. She uh, manipulates people's memories. She controls things. She uh, endangers lives. If she is seen through the lens of second wave feminism, I could see it through a lens of, of um, empowerment, but I wouldn't say she's a hero of second wave feminism because she does a number of really villainous things throughout this saga. And I, I guess that's the only danger to that analogy. Maybe she's not a hero, but maybe she's a response, her anger, her rage. Yeah, I think, you know, um, as I've mentioned earlier, um, like Justin, on your piece, you made a parallel with Medea and the doll's house. And, you know, in those stories, like classic tales, like I, I've read the, a doll's house in my theater class and my theater professor just loved it. He said, it's like, a, this is the reason why you're all in college today and you're not at home. So in the doll's house, um, when Nora, she leaves her husband and her children at the end after enduring all that abuse from her husband it, at the time it seemed controversial it seemed like Nora was this evil character but like now it's almost empowering for us to read it's it's seen as like a tale of feminism it's um it is like seeing a woman making a choice for herself instead of seeing it as an evil act that oh she left her children and her husband like she doesn't care for them I think Jean like Dark Phoenix Saga is very similar to that because um, here Marvel Girl was, you know, she started off as one of the only females in a group of men. She was considered to be weaker than her colleagues. And then suddenly she has all this power as the Phoenix. She's almost like a god. She has 
like she can take over the universe. And and again, she definitely did some problematic things that's way more that cannot be really said. I mean, genocide can never be empowering, but I can definitely see that it is still like a I would definitely still say it is a story of feminism in the way that here this woman who's endured all these years of sort of like indirect abuse from her colleagues in regards to like having less power and now she's suddenly so much powerful I think that is itself empowering but but what does that say about the fact that there is this power but in the end it was it was her undoing and that power yielded great danger to existence and in the end there was I guess a, a type of failure, I guess you can say, uh, for lack of a better word right now. Um, she couldn't handle it. So what does that say in terms of, what does that say about feminism, I guess? Well, but doesn't she handle it? It isn't her undoing because she could be, she could have been the goddess. The undoing of the Phoenix was Jean Grey to me. From my perspective, um, it's unfortunate that throughout this story gene is either manipulated or she is activated through blind rage yeah. you know pure passion intense feeling and then when she gains her sense of consciousness towards the end of the dark phoenix saga she bemoans these actions not in a way that they were her own choices in the way that they were impulses that she couldn't control yeah she absolutely controlled her own death and it was self-sacrificial, as is traditional for X-Men. But in spite of the fact that she ended her own life for the betterment of the galaxy and the whole cosmic universe, all of the things that were done, I don't think were Jean's choices. And I don't think it can really be empowering unless they are a choice. My question is, does it have to be empowering? Because... I guess I, I want to get us away from thinking about what's empowering and understanding her rage. Because, you know, here you have this woman who is pushed into this position of being the least powerful person, is now the most powerful person. Her man is has lost his shit over it. He doesn't know wh- wh- which, which end is up. This guy from the Hellfire Club is trying to rape her, essentially. Xavier, her father figure, has inhibited her from becoming who she is yes he thought it was the right thing as parents often do but maybe there was a better way to go about that isn't her rage understandable i think of how i have been manipulated in the past and there is for me there was rage finding out oh my god none of these things were true you were just forcing me or, or you know you were creating a circumstance where that was the only thing i could think and the reality is so much more different. I am full of rage over that. And and for me, I understand that. I don't necessarily, I guess at, at the, the point in the story that we're talking about, uh, the point where she's Dark Phoenix, where she's full of rage, I, I don't think that that's the healthiest way to deal with it. But I do see a parallel to the rage women must have felt at the time from these constant barriers put on them just like those psychic barriers were put on gene and i understand it i again don't condone it yeah no no disagreement there and and i think the and especially the way that you're framing it the the rage is completely understandable i myself have felt that rage many times (laughs) in my life as a woman and you know as whatever other labels 
what gives me pause and is just forcing me to reflect more before really choosing a side on this, it's just a consideration, is when you're operating from a place of passion, like Trent was saying, and if you want to frame it in terms of, you know, feminism, it bothers me to view the feminist movement as something that is ne- that is purely being fueled by emotions that the women can't control. Because I feel like that's feeding into whatever stereotype that has been placed on women anyway, that they're emotional creatures, they cannot control them. And if you put a woman in power, um, she's just going to be run by her emotions and the world is going to blow up. That's why we can't have a female president, whatever people have said in the past. I mean, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And so I pause just to give it more consideration because there is a problem here. There is a representation, I guess, of feminism in, in, in some respects, but I also don't like how it's being depicted because at the end of it, only agency this woman has is to end her own life yeah. because she has in, an inability to control this rage. What does that say about women in general and about these criticisms that have been placed on them for this exact thing? I think it says good stuff to me because I think of she chose not to have the rage you know she chose to save the very people who instilled this rage in her and i think of it more as not her being a woman but a a human being would react with that kind of rage and I think there's also we you know we need to accept that 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 rage is also the phoenix right is fueled by this other being's obsession to experience life through Jean's eyes through her sense of touch through her senses and uh, to me it, it makes the ending bookmarks the rage in a way that makes it seem empowering to women for me as a as a gay man homo man whatever queer man whatever i mean choose your adjective i'll take whatever <laughs> I, I don't like i hate the word gay because I'm not, I'm not that happy i mean i'm like i perf- i mean i just like dudes but whatever that makes me um yeah uh you know that anyway that well, i don't want to make this about me but uh you know it's uh, so uh, yeah I, so i don't want to speak for all women but i guess to me it makes it seem like that but that's again just my opinion and how i see it sure no, it it makes sense i guess i i'm i'm viewing it as a looking at this in terms like you know if i had a daughter who was perhaps experiencing um some sort of conflict with her identity and she looks at this character as a role model someone that she can relate to and then her story ends in such a way does that mean that my daughter will think that the only way for her to possibly deal with her rage is just by ending it all because she just does, is not capable of dealing with it. That that's where I see, you know, the small problem. Like I hear you, I hear what you're saying. I just this is my criticism towards how this this had to end. Totally okay. So if it was my kid and my daughter asking me about it, I would say that if you experience rage, it's okay. That you are the one who is able to choose your thoughts. You are the one who's able to deal with your emotions. And, you know, you, I wouldn't say you have to take your own life over them, but I think that the, the lesson is that you have agency over them and that this is an extreme example to the, you know, nth degree of, of the metaphor that you are going through in your life, which is, you know, to maybe accept that you're feeling rage and then 
you can have agency to do whatever you want with it. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to what we were saying earlier about embracing every aspect of who you are so that you can better understand it because through understanding, you're able to process and deal in a healthy way. I guess my thing is there was no real options available. Like she, she had agency over the choice that she made to end her life, but it was not, it was a false choice. There was no other option that was even a possibility in this scenario. And again, that, that's where I'm like, "Mm, if your only choice is to kill yourself and then you choose to kill yourself, is that really a choice? Well, I think that's very valid, but uh, but then when you said that last sentence, then I started to disagree with you. Because <laughs> no, because to me the choice isn't to live like a god. Yeah, I mean, she did have the choice to live as Phoenix and to live the life of a god. But, well, that, but that's what I mean. Like one choice is clearly the wrong choice because that means that you're going to destroy the universe. Well, I, I guess technically in panel there are are three options. There's um, the self sacrifice that Jean went with. There's uh, her having to control every aspect of herself every single second, forever and ever, as Scott suggested, which I don't think is tenable. And then there is this other option of just embracing this cosmic being of death and rebirth that's a little bit more towards the death side at this point in time. So I don't think, to Amna's point, I don't think it would be true to Jean's character to have that other option even be an option. I think the choice that she made, if you can call it a choice, is the only one that she could have made being true to herself. Marius, when you look at Amna and I's discussion, what is the ethical standpoint on this? Oh yeah. Um, in terms of um, in terms of the the choice and, and its implications. Yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, mostly any ethicists would come to the conclusion that uh, there is only one correct choice here because um, although uh, you can kind of instill sort of an deontological rule that would um, prevent you from killing anyone, including yourself. So suicide is is not an option. Usually what happens is that uh, with any consequentialist or kind of utilitarian uh, considerations, uh, it reaches a point where when now that we've reached like billions of, of specimen, billions of um, billions of people's lives who are on the line, um, there usually comes a point where we give in and um, and accept that kind of the, the deontological rule that we were trying to hold up is no longer kind of acceptable, um, which of course, um, they're kind of trying to reason at what point this is legitimate or not would, would probably lead into like a meta-ethical discussion, which is kind of too much for this podcast, right? But um, I'm pretty confident in saying that uh, the, the consensus would be that um, Yes, suicide is is the only ethical ethical choice here. I, I think that that shed light onto the debate Omna and I were having, and that I'm just simply less ethical. So, and I'm cool with that. <laughs> okay. Um, Not mean that. I, I mean that. I think so because I'm, I'm like, gonna I'm, stand up for you right now. That is, no, it does not mean that. Well, yeah, but I would have been like, I'm not sure. I would have been like, shit. I could be a god. And like, because it's like at this point, what does anyone else's life matters? I just killed billions of people. I'm just gonna, yeah. I'm I, at this point. You know what? Maybe the other billion will have a great life. Maybe I'll be a good god. I mean, that's also what, uh, in the end, the watcher pointed out that that's the life that she chose. She could have lived like a god. So I mean, I think since the watcher's job is to just observe and not interfere, then whatever he must have observed 
is ethical. So Justin, I don't agree that you're unethical. <laughs> I came to the same conclusion as Uatu. I never thought uh, anyone has, would ever say that sentence. But really, like, uh, Uatu is kind of an analog for the reader, though, too. Like, we, we're all the watcher, and we can all derive our own conclusion. All he does is view and record events, realistically. Yes. He's the observer. Oh, you know what I want to talk about? That moment where she goes home. Because I had a, I, um, from Trent bringing it up and me reading it a couple of days ago, I had a very different experience reading it. Because I was, I was always like, I always thought of it like the gene part of the phoenix after she just consumed a star and killed billions of people that she didn't even give a shit about goes home to be a little girl again. Because there is that part of her that does feel guilty, I think. And where does she go to feel like a girl? She, she goes back to her house. She picks up her friend, the, the, her, when I say her friend, the little stuffed animal, and she starts dancing with it. And she wants to feel like a girl again. She wants to feel cocooned. She wants that to innocence. feel, yeah, she wants to get that back. Um, and this time, my focus wasn't so much on that. It was more on the parents. And they're like, you're no daughter of mine. Look how much you've changed. And I thought, shit. Is that a metaphor for me personally? And hey, I'm not straight. You know, you're not, you've seen me this way your whole life, but I'm not this way. You're seeing me as who I am now. And it's terrifying you. And, and that, I got that out of this, you know, 50 fucking first reading is, is what I got from it this time. So I, I, what did that scene mean for you all? And what did it conjure up for you? I didn't initially think of it like the way you just described, but now it's pretty relatable. <laughs> yeah. I, I would, I'd have to agree. I mean, when I read it, I, I being an adult who occasionally visits his parents, uh, I find the dynamic has definitely changed with my parents and they talk to me as someone who isn't necessarily making the choices that they would make in my position. And that's annoying. And I think Jean's annoyed by the fact that her parents are, so curt with her and that their expectations of her are out of line with reality. And I absolutely think it's a metaphor. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I can see both perspectives that you had reading it. Um, she probably did go back home to feel home again, to be around people like she's done this horrible thing and she wants to be around people who unconditionally love her. But then again, it's challenging because with her parents, it's like, it's almost like how I think it's really challenging for parents to deal with their children becoming adults because when they're children, they're kind of like they're pup like puppets. You know, the children are like blindly like I was like blindly believing my mom. Oh, my God, my mom's an angel. Like whatever she does is perfect. And then suddenly when I disagree with her, it's kind of like shocking for her. Like I raised this woman and her views are so different from mine. So it's like this gene kind of went for discomfort. But at the same time, her parents don't really necessarily feel the same level of comfort because they feel like they don't know this person anymore. I kind of got, love me, love me. I just did this horrible thing. Love me, love me. You always love me. I just did this horrible thing. Love me, love me. Okay, you're not going to love me. I'm going to change this plant into a f***ing crystal. And you're lucky I'm not doing that to you because I wanted you to f***ing love me. I totally get that. <laughs> <laughs> that's basically the story of every that's why every single one of my relationships have failed i'm not kidding oh my God. that's literally why i'm like you don't love me fine f 
you. Get the f*** out. And I'm gonna. you're lucky I don't turn you into a crystal. Then I'm like, why doesn't any of my exes still talk to me? <laughs> I'm so such yeah, a victim. I, I feel like this resonates with me a lot because, um, yeah, as I've said, I, I just moved out of my parents' uh, place just a few months ago, really. Just half a year ago. And I feel like this... Um, it's a very particular situation going back to to your parents' house, kind of the the place where you grew up, and getting this kind of, of I, I want to say feeling of of being home or feeling like a kid again in a in a strange way, but not in a in a holistic way. I think, and I love my parents more than anything else, probably, um, or more than than most things else in the in the world. I love my parents so much, but um. I'm not gonna lie in terms of especially in terms of like things like gender identity. I don't think it's always as easy to navigate some situations with them nowadays. I'm gonna remain silent on this one. I <laughs> I mean it's no secret. I don't have a good relationship with my family, never have. And I feel like it just it's getting worse as I get older. And for me, this is hard to relate to because even as a kid, those are not the people that I ran to for comfort. Like my family was not the place that I went to seeking this this type of thing. It was always either friends or other people. You were the type of X Man who couldn't go home to your the X Men were your family. Oh yeah. Yeah, I was probably the <laughs> I was probably the X Man that was like, Oh my god, put it in a cage and electrocute it. <laughs> You're Wolfsbane. <laughs> <laughs> Arrange Sinclair is great, so that's not a bad thing. <laughs> I, I did not take it as a bad thing at all, no. Yeah. But just, I mean, yeah, it's, I, I read that scene and I can intellectualize what is happening and can understand, but it's hard for me to empathize because it's not something that I have experienced personally. But it makes sense to me. I mean, if these are the people that she's close to, these are the people that, she felt loved by um, and she's done this awful thing and she's trying to go back to a place that reminds her of a, of a time when she had, she was innocent. She had that childlike innocence, which is like the complete polar opposite of the feeling that she has doing this incredibly terrible thing. So yeah, it makes complete sense to me. The way that you framed it, Justin is also, um, I didn't quite, my mind didn't quite go there, but I, I, I liked what you had to say. Totally get it. See it. She went back there because she didn't love herself because she was of what she's doing. And she wanted them to love her so that she could. To remind her that she was worth loving. Yeah. Because I think as much as we talked about in that moment, she doesn't even realize those billions of people she killed. A part of her did and a part of her lost herself there. Now that we're kind of in this deep kind of place, what did reading the story bring up for you guys personally? That when people misunderstand you, it can get ugly. That, that sense of dread and, and depression and hopelessness can really consume you. If uh, long, I'm not making any sense. What it told me was it's so important to have a healthy relationship with yourself and who you are. I think that was my biggest takeaway from, from this story. Yeah, I can totally agree with Amna. For me, it was also kind of realizing, accepting yourself when no one else really can. Like she was, I think Jean is, was in this position where she couldn't really relate to anyone and no one could relate to her either. And she was in this position where 
it was only herself. She was with her, stuck with herself. And I mean, it was more in a way complex because she was not herself either. So yeah, I think the message that I got very similar to what Amna said is that, you know, you, ne- you need to have your back because there's not always going to be people who can relate to you, even if that's your, you know, the person that you love the most. Like even Scott couldn't relate to Jean in this case. The thing that I find reading this again is that um, obviously it's a story of what's happening to Jean, but in the background, there's kind of this uh, extremely passionate, but also tragic love affair between her and Scott. And every time I read it, it becomes a little bit more prevalent to me. And I guess like the moments where the visor is removed or, or they develop this psychic rapport, which is like from a realistic perspective, like incredibly unhealthy. <laughs> and, and even him fighting for her life on the blue side of the moon and her having to convince him or, well, or even just taking his agency away like she did before she got the Phoenix powers in the shuttle, this needs to happen. And you can't control this situation. This is just how it's going to be. Um, so going back and looking at it, it's just, it's really interesting from like a, a relational perspective between the X-Men characters. And yeah, they, there's layers to this story. <laughs> For sure. I think that um, I shared that experience in terms of um, having a, kind of a new understanding for the relationship between uh, Scott and Jean through the experience of reading the Dark Phoenix saga. But I think there's also more to it that um, I'm not sure I can can put into words yet because I think while the the concept of uh, the Phoenix and Jean can be described in just one sentence, it's, all, it's also a very layered and very complex um, sort of uh, dynamic, but also sort of, sort of um, story to tell. And this is what we were, we were saying earlier is that... Um, even though this seems like a comic book made for kids, here we are talking hours and hours about the the many layers that it, it has to offer from various kind of like even academic approaches. Um, I think it's just incredibly incredibly hard to 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 put into words what can be taken away from from this book. Right, that's that's just where I'm at. I think for me, there's no surprise if you look at kind of the things I was sticking up for before. I grew up with rage all around me and hurled towards me almost what felt like constantly. And I developed my own rage back at those people for putting me in an environment where I had to receive it at all times, uh, for at, at every aspect of who I was. And now that I'm an adult and in quote unquote, a position of power, even though I don't feel that way, the rage that I would have as a kid when I would just be like, stop doing this, stop. And it comes out now and I see people around me are scared (laughs) and I'm like, Oh, I didn't even mean anything bad. I was just, you know, reliving this thing and it was tapping into that. And it scares me that people see that side of me. I don't know. And I don't think people would describe me as an angry person, even though I would describe myself as that way. But I empathize with the rage of the Phoenix or Jean emanating from the fact that all of these people tried exerting their will on her and were trying to prevent her from being who she is. 
and I guess I understand that. And it, I think it why I think it's why at the end it makes the decision a little bit murky for me because I see as what she's doing, sacrificing herself for the very people who oppressed her and people similar. And I like to think I would make the same decision. I'm not really sure. I like, but I, I hope I would. But I very much empathize with because it would be like, okay, because part of me is like, okay, cool. You guys all had your turn to be gods in my life. Now's my turn. But I hope, I, like I said, I hope I would make the right decision. But I, I, the rage to me, it really speaks to me. And that scene where she goes home really speaks to me. Um, just like those romantic, beautiful moments when she's on the butte with, with Cyclops and she takes off the visor where they're on the moon and they hold each other's hand and, you know, they say, I love you and all this stuff. Uh, you know, th- those, those parts are beautiful and I want those parts too. But I can't sort of get over for me that here's the, this woman being judged for being angry and who wouldn't be. And to lighten the mood, I'll just say, I would not want a psychic rapport with someone I was in love with because what if I was like, oh shit, I have to poop. And they're like, what did you just think? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I said I have to get a new shoe, new shoes. Or what if I was like, oh, that person's really hot. And they're like, what? And I'm like, I said that my back is really hot in this shirt. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, but... But, you know, it's like all the, you know, I don't want those them to know that stuff, you know, or, or like, what if, what if I'm like, oh man, like, what if I'm like, you know, you're not fresh down there. I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen that I don't want to know. And I don't want them to know about me. Oh, it's, it's awful, but it's also so passionate when you think about it. The good yeah. part is passionate, but then you got to after like, oh, I have to pee. Like the good part. Okay. But, but, but the, the thing, the thing about the Phoenix and the thing about that choice is that passion doesn't require love or thought. Passion is just the heat, you know? And that's, that's what I love about it. It's so hot and it's so unhealthy. But that heat wouldn't get turned down for you if Jean Grey's like, man, I have a wicked shit to take. <laughs> like I'd be like, oh, you know what? I'm not in the mood as much anymore. Everybody disgusting. Everybody poops. <laughs> yeah, every, there's a book. I'll, I'll get it for you if you'd like. It's called Everybody Poops. Um, <laughs> I know. Just, I just don't want to know. You know, I just don't. Wanna... <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Sure. And those are normal insecurities to have. Um, but just piggybacking off of what Trent just said, the way that I envision, like if I had to imagine what a psychic rapport would feel like, the way that it's being. Uh, depicted um, in this series, it's not necessarily, and I know she can read people's minds, but the psychic rapport is about two souls connecting, meaning no words, just a feeling. Has there, Have there ever been times where you're feeling something and just no amount of words can accurately articulate what it is that you're trying to convey? But if you can join someone in a way in which they can just feel how you're feeling, no words needed. That is so powerful and the ultimate form of intimacy. And I think that is what I envision a psychic rapport to be. Mm. And pooping and all of these other things are so human and insignificant in comparison. So I, 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 I think I'm with Trent on this one. No, I, I, that, that kind of opens because you made it sound so beautiful because isn't that a metaphor for love? Like when you're both laying in bed together and you're the only two people alive and it's like your minds are connected yeah, we're we're limited because we're human beings, but yeah. But this is this is the exaggerated superhero version of that. Or this is what it's supposed to be, Aww. and we're just not capable of attaining it. And I think what also I think you appreciated those moments more because they weren't constant. Like 
Scott kept like losing that psychic report. And then when he was finding it again, it was like, oh my God, that is so like, oh my God, they're connecting again. Like, that's so cute. Like, because it wasn't that constant, you didn't really see it as like, you know, like listening to your partner and wanting to poop or anything. It was more of something like they were losing and then they were catching again. And I think that's what made it more romantic. Yeah, and, and those things, those moments occurred when he himself was not worried about his fear of her or her abilities or not concerned with being a good leader for the X-Men. It came when all of those inhibitions were melted away and it was just them as two souls. That's it. What do you hope that people who are going to go out and read Dark Phoenix Saga after hearing this podcast gain from reading the comic? What do you hope they walk away with? What kind of feelings? I hope they would um, sort of appreciate the complexity of the story. And also because there's so much room for interpretation. We all had like different opinions. We had like so many debates in this one podcast. I think it's like great for the listener to hear to all those perspectives and just understand that, you know, how many perspectives this can have because that that is what true art is, true art true art has a lot of room for interpretation and that's what makes it you know complex in a really beautiful way i completely agree i think that um what can be taken away kind of from uh from giving the book a, a thorough read or even more thorough reads um than before is that um well as we said it's it's a very layered book it's not a um it's not as simple as I think a lot of people would make it out to be, which is why it's it's such a milestone. But also, um, kind of to uh, to get an understanding of the the pop cultural relevance uh, and influence that the comic has, uh, not only for uh, for the comic book industry, but also outside of it. I mean, um, if there's going to be a movie made out of this comic book for the second time soon, which is. Uh, not something that a lot of uh, comic book writers can say about their material. So um, this goes far beyond um, just being a comic book. Um, it also, as a comic book, is um, it, it does everything that um, we would expect it to do and more, which is something that um, I think people should be appreciating. I'm excited to see how the film that is coming out this year is going to capture these elements of the series like what will they amplify what will they focus on i i think that and this is just me making kind of a um an educated guess is that um what's gonna be carrying over the best from the source material is probably um the role that scott has to play with it uh, within it uh, because I, i've heard uh, some statements of the creators that they kind of want to to focus on scott's role uh more than they did uh, in the previous installments with him, um, which is kind of a, a good sign because I think the the movie can only work if they get the relationship between um, between those two right, um, which is where kind of kind of the emotional stakes come from a lot of the time. Maybe for for uh, for um, the audience to identify with even. And I think that um, they got some of that right in, in X-Men Apocalypse where, um, what's his name, Ty Sheridan and um, Sophie Turner first met on screen. And I think they have the, the potential if they, if they want to focus on that to um, 
even if they are uh, kind of going to uh, have to leave out certain aspects of uh, of the comic book. Obviously, I'm I'm not sure how much of the Shi'ar stuff is going to be carrying over, but I think that um, while it it may not be a, a truthful adaptation, some of the core ideas could could prevail uh, in the film as opposed to to X Men: The Last Stand. Sophie Turner said, "X-Men: Dark Phoenix will redefine the superhero genre." So my question is, what is our advice to Sophie Turner as X-Men fans in terms of playing the role, and what are some things that you hope the movie accomplishes that the comic accomplished? I think that um, Sophie Turner has an uh, has an understanding of the character, and that uh, some p- parts of what has been tried in X-Men: Apocalypse are a step in the right direction. I initially was was a very big fan of of Sophie Turner as um, as Jean Grey, and I know that some were not. But uh, I think for me, it's mostly. And I've I've told this story several times. The first time I saw the movie uh, was actually with uh, with the the German audio version, so I didn't actually get to hear her voice. So I, the the British accent accent wasn't really a problem for me. Uh, so this is kind of the only point of criticism thus far that I really have um, about her gene because um, I know that she grew up reading the character and it's always been a dream of hers to to play it. Um, what she says is true. And I, I, I think I believe her because um, from her acting, I get kind of the, the sense of um, of some of the the most important uh, features about Jean Grey that kind of really make her who she is. And I think if they focus on that, um, also in regards to some of the themes from the Dark Phoenix Saga comic book, and if they then get the ending right in combination with a kind of a strong relationship uh, to Scott, that's kind of where where the emotional investment should come from. Uh, and maybe something that um, I'm not sure they should focus on too much this time because it's already been done is what, um, what role um, Charles is going to play in it. I know this is probably going to come up, but um, I don't think that um, it has to be the main focus as was in in the last stand, probably. I mean, I wouldn't really say that I'm an... I only became like a fan of X-Men comics recently. I haven't really watched the movies, but I did um, read one of the academic papers, which was like a comparison between... Dark Phoenix Saga and um, X-Men The Last Stand, the movie. And I saw that, I mean, I think what they were trying to say is that the movie focused more on how Phoenix turning out, like Dark Phoenix turning out the way she is, is because solely because of her inability to control her powers. Whereas the comic, there's more context about that. You know, we have Mastermind and everything, but we don't really have that. We don't really see that in the movie. So in the movie, it's more focusing on the fact that, you know, these like women like Rogue and Jean, they, you know, they are the way they are just because they, they just can't control their powers, which we don't see in the male characters. So, I mean, that's obviously not the fault of Sophie Turner because she's not the one um, like writing the script for the movie. But I would definitely want to see something that's not so demeaning to women. And I, I mean, it's, I'm always like a book person. I hate when books are turned into movies because they always like take certain aspects and add certain aspects and then it just becomes really different from the book. But I mean, 
that's just the way it is. <laughs> There's nothing to do about that. But I'm definitely like like what I said earlier, definitely hoping that this is more um, instead of demeaning the female characters, it, I hope that they can show more um, strong characters, which is, I believe, one of the reasons why like Chris, Chris Claremont, his writing became like so much like famous is because of the strong female characters. And I definitely want to see that in the movie as well. For me, um, X-Men Apocalypse was a catastrophe. Uh, I, I have a myriad of issues with that movie, in part because I cherish X-Men. It's so important to who I am as a person. Um, so to not have the reverence, I think certain Marvel movies would uh, for the characters or even the spirit of the characters, it was really frustrating. And the the most frustrating thing towards the end of Apocalypse was to see a Phoenix Raptor appear behind Sophie Turner as though she was just manifesting this inner ability that she had always had. You know, she was unleashing the full breadth of her powers. Uh, and that's not what the Phoenix is. The Phoenix is um, certainly a metaphor in some respects for her empowerment, but in more literal terms, it is a cosmic entity of death and rebirth. And that is an amazing, awesome story. So to hear that uh, Simon Kinberg is interested in grounding the movie in reality, and it, it makes me think that they don't really have an, an understanding of the place the X-Men have in the cosmic Marvel Universe. And I think it's a huge opportunity lost. And if that's the approach that they're taking, I think that they're going to make the same character pitfalls that they did in X3 The Last Stand, which most people would probably agree is one of the worst X-Men movies. I think the only saving grace that I can point to of Apocalypse is the fact that Sophie Turner did have the warmth and the openness that Jean Grey embodies. And I very much appreciate that. But for me, the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga are also a relational piece, not just with the other X-Men team members, but between Scott and Jean. And I don't think the Scott that was on screen in Apocalypse is anything like Scott Summers. And the relationship between him and Jean really didn't get anywhere by the end of the film, with the exception of her holding his head while he shot concussive. They weren't even concussive blasts. They were fire-based lasers for some reason. Um, and I don't want to be the fan that nitpicks these things, but I just feel like the setup isn't what it needs to be to adapt such a cherished piece of fiction, such an important piece of artwork. It's not just about a movie being adapted and some moving parts having to be changed because it's a different medium. It's I don't think that the people producing this upcoming film have a strong understanding of the spirit of the characters or the overall themes of this story. And it's really distressing for me, personally. <laughs> that was very passionate. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, the funny thing is, um, I hear you and can appreciate where you're coming from, Trent. There's a part of me that is hoping that they do stray a little bit simply for the purpose of making Jean and, and Phoenix a more empowering character than I perceive her to be in the comics. Like if I was to ask for any 
change or deviation, I think it would be in that respect. And I think in some ways they have to, to make it relevant to modern day audiences. This is supposed to be a modern take on the story. So I'm interested to see exactly uh, what strings they pull at um, within the narrative to make that happen. I feel similarly to Trent in that I was curious why they did X-Men Apocalypse so soon in the reboot. And I also felt like, man, you have to build up to Dark Phoenix Saga because the whole point is that Jean Grey is the mother of the team. She's the heart of the team at this point, even though Nightcrawler also gets called that. And Storm is also referred to as the the mother of the X-Men. But it's sort of like what happens when the sweet... It would be like what happened if, like, Anika went crazy. You know what I'm saying? She's, like, the sweetest, nicest person ever. But, like, all of a sudden, you know, like, she's, like, become a prostitute and, like, starts, you know, smoking crack. I'd be a little bit worried, you know? And I'd be like, it would be sad. And then, you know, then she's like, I'm going to f***ing stab you, Justin. I'm like, no, I have to stab you because I want to live. And you've become a crack whore, Anika. And then it's, like, super sad. And I just stabbed my crack whore friend who was once Anika. I forgot why I'm talking about that, but um, anyway, uh, well, oh, why it's sad. <laughs> you really went down the hole with that one. Oh yeah, because but first we have to understand that we like love Anika. You know what I'm saying? And how beautiful Aww. Anika is. And she came with us to Tidewater, and she's like so adorable and says all these nice things. But if we just met Crackhor version of Anika, we don't know who that. We don't know. We don't haven't. We haven't loved her before. So it's just another Crackhor. No offense. <laughs> uh, and then this like hypothetical, you know. So it's like no offense. And then. Um, and I, I don't I don't know that the audience has gotten to love Scott and Jean and, and gets to know see Jean in this way. And that way I'm also extremely nervous. However, I would ask you, what about Ultimate X-Men and how they dealt with the Phoenix there? And do you think that their stuff No, I kinda liked that. You didn't like that? <laughs> Good to know. I don't like goatee Scott or Ultimate X-Men personally. <laughs> Wait, goatee Scott. He had a goatee in X in Ultimate X-Men? Yeah. Oh wow! I didn't even. I forgot. Um, no, I just remember the. Oh, whole... he, had, he had a soul patch. Sorry. Oh, a soul patch. Oh, what? Yeah, I, I I like a guy with a soul patch. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> You've just dated yourself, Justin. Have I? Oh, wait. Isn't isn't that? Aren't they these things over here? Yeah, but those were only hot during like a certain time. Yeah, like 1998. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I still think it's hot. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think you should bring back the soul. Okay, we're, oh, it's getting hot in here. Are we still talking about X Men? No, I'm just kidding. We're, not, uh, we're talking about soul patches. Yeah, woof. I love a good soul patch. Um, <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, Trent, you're right. It's gonna suck. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, no, <laughs> um, no. But I seriously, I hope that. Um, I, you know, I mean, Sophie Turner is an incredible actor. I, I hope that, and she's been, like Maria said, she's been reading X Men. But man, I hope that everyone who's making this film understands what this comic means not only for us not only for x-men fans but for the world and for x-men fans reading it in 1979-1980 you know we're seeing this woman so powerful i mean it must have been what must that have been like for them i think and and can we have that now as omna said modernized and that would be something that i would like to get and i really just like I said, I want to reiterate that I hope that they understand like what this comic means to us, to the world, and to the medium of comics. So the last thing I wanted to do before we end is I have, uh, I just want to do a little bit of like a word association, like what comes to your mind with this person. Is that cool? So we'll each go around. Yes. All right. And if, and if you don't know the person, if you don't have a, a thing to say, don't worry about it. All right. Kitty Pride. 
adorable. I'll go first. I, I see her as like a nerdy Moppet. All right. Yeah, I go with Moppet. Hero. Brave. Oh, Marius. Oh, Omna. The girl has no idea what is going on with her. She meets these strangers and feels an immediate duty to save their lives. That's pretty incredible for a 13 and a half year old. And remember when she first meets Emma Frost in Astonishing X-Men and she finds out Emma's now on the team of X-Men and she goes, I'm pleased. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And, and she goes, when I think of evil, I think of you. Cause I think of the first day I met the X-Men, the first day I met them, they were kidnapped and locked into cages and they were put in there by you. Yeah. I think, oh, and it's probably important to point out that right after the Dark Phoenix saga, we have Days of Future Past, which not only stars Kitty Pride, but it it stars two time displaced versions of Kitty Pride. So it's pretty spectacular. This is true. All right, so we're all Kitty fans, and it's really awesome that she's leading the X Men now. How about Dazzler? Rad. Rad. I like <laughs> that. I'm not, I'm not sure about Dazzler. It's a hard one, I think. I'm just going to go with Dazzle. Uh, a fun fact that we should state, and then Chris Claremont has told us all this many times, is that he intended her to be African-American. Right. And then they said no, uh, And as Trent and I were talking about the other day, because they were trying to have a movie and, and a, a, a record come out that was made by Dazzler, and they were going to do a comic movie thing, and the whole thing fell through. I, I envision whenever um, you know she does the light blast, that glitter it, it like transforms into like a glitter bomb instead. Like that's her superpower. All right, awesome. How about uh, Colossus? Stoic, robust, heart of gold. I just feel like I don't know him enough to associate him with the word. Uh, uh, attractive. Kitty seems to think so. Yeah, yeah. we're both on that page. It depends on who's drawing. Um, uh, okay, Beast is in it a little bit. How about Beast? Futile. Oh. <laughs> that mind thing didn't work. It, he like worked so hard on it, and, and she took that thing off in like five seconds. Beast is a hard one for me. There's so much that comes to mind. What's the first thing? Gentle giant. Oh, that's cute. I think of Harry is the first thing else I want to think of him. Dead. Yeah. I, I think of the word fascinating. <laughs> he says it all the time. It's true. He says it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll go with Harry as well. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's anything else I have to say. About Would beastie work? Is beastie, that a word? <laughs> yeah. Beastie. Go. I, I love it. It doesn't need to be a real word. Um, storm. Goddess. Magnanimous. Beautiful. Goddess was a good one. A quick interjection is that that comic changed my life in that at the end you see Cyclops and Storm walking together hand in hand. And I was like, boys and girls can be friends. And it really had a profound impact. If if there was one panel that had a profound impact on me my whole life, I would say that one. Because it, it created a way for me to think my whole life that worked. Anyway, Storm. That's awesome. Yeah, right? I was quiet for a minute because I, I was thinking about all the times in my life that people keep insisting that men and women cannot be friends as a criticism that I have a lot of male friends. And I'm like, just because you can't have mature relationships is not my problem. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, just because like you can't control your penis doesn't mean every other man is like a f-ing, like alpha male running yeah. around trying to impregnate oh everybody. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like put it in your pants, dude. That was beautiful. Justin. Thank you. For <laughs> Thank you. Note, note to all men. Angel. Rich. 
I just think of like those wealthy New York like a wasp boys that just live life to the fullest. Yeah. Yeah. Entitled. Angelic. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Um, I'm also gonna go with attractive. Mm-hmm. He is he is attractive. Yeah, I'd go there. Pre Archangel Warren, yes. Post Archangel Warren. <laughs> Post Arch- I, I don't know like what he leaves inside you after, so I don't know like what that does to a person. So I would say no. Because I don't want like apocalypses heebie jeebies like in my You DNA. don't want a death seed? Well, yeah, I don't want a death seed. You know, I don't know where this I don't like where this is going, but you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. ne- next person. Lalandra. Avian. <laughs> Charles. Ooh. Hard for me. I, I'm I'm not it's difficult for me to come up with a word. Birdie. Birdie. <laughs> yeah, I just think feathers. This is the first thing that comes to mind. Right. Yeah, that counts. Birdie. <laughs> just keep laughing at that. I don't know if she I don't, does she always try to do the right thing? Then I would say goody two shoes. She's kind of like goody two shoes. Okay. She also seems like a little bit entitled to me. It's like, look, bitch, I don't know what's going on in the Shi'ar Empire, but I live on Earth. Okay. So you do you, I'll do me. <laughs> you know? So, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not involved in that. Okay, cool. Xavier, Charles. Professor Xavier is a jerk, to quote Kitty. <laughs> Great. One of the best quotes of all time. Controlling. I think in this one, he's depicted as the ultimate patriarchal figure. He's very critical of Scott without Put really. Put that on his tombstone. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and I don't necessarily mean that as a pejorative. Um, I mean, in the sense that he's, he's a very critical father figure to um, everybody. And, and I, I specifically think about his relationship with Scott and thinking about that panel where. Um, after escaping uh, Emma Frost, uh, he takes the X-Men to um, where Angel is to hide out rather than taking them back to the mansion. And Charles Xavier is sitting there and questioning his judgment that he disobeyed me. How dare he? Why did he bring us here? Versus, you know, you could just talk to each other and figure out what the heck is going on. And I think that's a very classic um, depiction of a father figure who is in conflict with his male son. That there's this power dynamic, this this struggle between the two where the boy has to prove himself, but the father is not really allowing him to do that um, because he's still trying to maintain some semblance of control under the guise of prove yourself to me. So I think in this one, he's, he's very much a classical patriarchal figure in that regard. And I, and I think mostly in terms of the dynamic between him and Scott more so than anything else. One, one thing that was mentioned early on um, <laughs> that really bothered me was uh, Nightcrawler mentioned that Professor X was upset that he wasn't using this device to make him appear human. Yes. Because Nightcrawler doesn't have passing privilege. He sticks out like a store thumb. And, and he reached a point in his personal development where he was like, this is who I am. This is who I'm going to be. And that made Professor X the champion of peaceful coexistence, angry. Mm-hmm. It speaks to his character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed that too, actually. Uh, I'm, I've always been Team Magneto, Team Emma Frost, so you don't have to convince Mag- me. Magneto made some valid points. <laughs> yeah, and not for nothing. Like, if you're going to sleep with one of them, like, I would definitely go with Magneto. Like, Xavier looks like I would, if, if prostitution was legal, I would buy him a coupon. 
I'm just saying, in this comic, because he looks like he needs, like, what are you so angry about, dude? Like, go, you know what? Everyone's in their mid 20s. Go get laid. Go yes. do something. Sex is the cure all for, for these ailments, right? For him. He's just such an asshole. Like, stop being I such a funny dude. To, to be honest, during this, I think he was having like an inferiority complex, not just with Scott, but the fact that he was essentially Lalandra's pet. Like, no one in the Shi'ar took him seriously, right? My point exactly. Go out. Go have fun. Go dominatrix somebody, uh, Xavier. Go go to the Hellfire Club. Yeah, go to the Hellfire Club. Go <laughs> go paddle Tessa. You know what I'm saying? Like it's go go do what you need to do. Leave me out of it. You know. Um. All right. Anyway, Xavier, I'm not a fan. Uh, okay, Jason Wingard, rapist. Yeah, rapey, creep, mother, mm. evil. I'm gonna go with creep as well. Emma Frost. Mm, sexy. <laughs> Queen. I want to hate her, but I kind of don't. Gold. <laughs> I'm going to steal what uh, Claremont said about her in this very same game. He said, Wicked. Jean Grey. Selfless. Conflicted. Tortured soul. Noble. One thing. <laughs> Dense. <laughs> That's a good one. But dense yeah. in a good way, right? Not dense, dense in a good way. Not not as a pejorative, yeah. The, the positively dense. Complicated. No, just dense. I'm trying to come up with a more positive word for dense, Trent. Dense is pretty neutral. Is it? I think so. Right, I think it's used uh, as an insult, though, right? I, yeah, I guess I, too many people in my life have called me dense, so I think of it as an insult, but maybe not. Okay, anyway, I digress. But yeah, any any final thoughts? Because that's going to do it for this episode. This is a fantastic series. Definitely worth a reread. Yeah, go out and read it and get ready for that movie. Uh, I'm super excited for it this year. I hope that it accomplishes everything we want it to accomplish. And I hope it gets across some of what this amazing comic did for all of us. So thank you guys all for taking all these hours out of your day to, to talk with each other and talk with me about Dark Phoenix Saga. Happy to be on the panel. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank Thanks you for, for having, having me on, us. Justin. Thank you. Aww, yeah. thank you guys all for being here. Um, but yeah, just a reminder to everybody listening, you can find more podcasts like this, videos, interviews, original articles over at comicsfirst.com. And thank you so much for listening.